we have a particular image uh, of what the shepherds might be in our minds. This is one of the best-loved and most widely known Bible stories around. This story will have been enacted out uh, in school nativities up and down the country with the addition of lobsters and whatever, whatever else needs to be added to give all the kids a part. This is a story that's well known. We, um, we enacted it out in our crib service here this afternoon and dressed children in tea towels uh, and fairy wings for angels. We, um, we love this story. We recreate it every year annually as a tradition. But it's also one of the stories that we've sanitized the most. We've cleaned up and we've tidied up. And as we've tidied it up, we've missed out some of the impacts. We turn the shepherds into noblemen, people who steadfastly hold watch over the flocks. And we we pretend they're almost kind of wise and dignified. But that's not really what the shepherds are at all. In in the first century, uh, in the Roman Empire, the shepherds would have been outcasts. They would have been known uh, as petty criminals. Wherever shepherds uh, shepherds and their flocks turned up, people would worry that belongings would go missing. The shepherds wouldn't care uh, where their sheep grazed. They would take them across boundaries into people's back gardens, into your back gardens, and they would eat people's plants and crops. Shepherds were viewed as bad news, uh, and so they were restricted uh, mainly to places outside of the city, because otherwise people would get very uh, het up and worried and concerned. These shepherds are petty criminals and outcasts. So it's possibly slightly surprising that it's to these people uh, that the first revelation that Jesus is coming outside of Mary and Elizabeth, it's interesting that revelation comes to them first. It's not the wise men who find out first, but the petty criminals, the outcasts. You see, because Jesus comes for the marginalized in society. Jesus comes for the homeless and the lost, for the single mothers struggling to make ends meet on benefits. Jesus comes for people who regard themselves as outside society, forgotten about, left aside. It's to, G- it's to those shepherds that Jesus comes and makes himself known first because Jesus is on the side of the poor. He's on the side of those who view themselves as unworthy, those who view themselves as unlovable. And so Jesus makes himself known to them. Jesus makes himself known to those shepherds, even though perhaps they may not have had a faith. There's no guarantees that these shepherds believed uh, in the Jewish God at all, and yet Jesus comes and is made known to them first. Perhaps uh, you're here tonight, um, and you're here because this is part of your yearly tradition. This is the thing that your family do. Maybe you're here every week, or maybe this is a a tradition that you... uh, We have a dog in the back of our church. That's excellent. And it's so well-behaved. That's nice. We have a puppy at home. Go to go visit it tomorrow. It's going to be excellent. Um, maybe um, <laughs> that was an unexpected segue. You can tell it's late, can't you? Um, perhaps um, you've not given much thought to God before, but this is your family tradition. This is what you do, and you, you come every year. Maybe um, you view God as distant. Maybe you uh, think that God isn't interested. Uh, in you. Perhaps you think uh, that God is loving and kind. Perhaps you think uh, he's slightly hateful. And because the the media wants to talk about the church's views on sexuality, that's how you view God. 
Perhaps you think that he's unconcerned. Perhaps you think uh, that you're not good enough for God, that if God did exist, then he would definitely think that you were unworthy, that you weren't worth God taking the time to get to know. I wonder how you view God, because there are no guarantees, there are no certainties that the shepherds believed uh, in the Jewish, in the Christian gods. But one thing that is for sure is that these shepherds are being called on a journey to Bethlehem. They're being called uh, to leave their former lives uh, behind and to go on a journey, a pilgrimage to Bethlehem, to meet with the baby Jesus. We're all called to go on that same journey, that same pilgrimage to Bethlehem. Some will be a long way down that journey. Some of you uh, will be following Jesus and you'll have done so for years, and you'll be committed. Others will be exploring, a little hesitant. Others uh, perhaps haven't given it much thought. But in tonight's passage, there is a call and an invitation to begin that journey. I want to tell you um, a little bit of my journey, of my story. I grew up uh, in a family uh, that was would have called itself Christian. We didn't necessarily um, always get along. We had blazing rows and we fought a lot, but we went to church most Sundays and did the right kind of thing. Uh, and I, um, I went to work for a church in Manchester for a year when I was 18. And I went because I was thinking about uh, training to be a vicar, and I'd been sent there to kind of figure out if I could cut the mustard, if I could be, um, a, if I was suitable vicar material. So I arrived age 18 at this church, uh, ready to impress everyone, ready for everyone to think um, that I was a credible 18-year-old, that I was wise and mature, and that I was ready uh, to help lead a church. I was there to help out with the youth work uh, and take old ladies out for tea and generally be uh, nice to people. And I am, I'd been there maybe three weeks, and all of my efforts to impress people suddenly fell apart. I was in the, the Monday morning staff meeting, uh, and it was a fairly new team. There were some new additions, so the, the vicar was just trying to get people to warm up and know each other a little bit. So he started the staff meeting uh, by going around and asking each of the vicars how they were. It was two vicars and a youth worker, my boss. And he started with the, the first vicar, and he said, how are you? And she gave um, a slightly dull answer and kind of waffled slightly, and that was all well and good. And then he moved on to the next one, and, and she waffled slightly, and that was fine. And then he spoke to my boss and said, the youth worker, how, how are you? And he spoke eloquently of the problems of being a youth worker, of the difficulties of working with young people and managing uh, a new family as well. And then the vicar came to me. And I had a whole script in my head that was going to make me sound emotionally mature and wise, but, but also interesting and funny and witty, and it was going to be beautiful. But I don't know if there was something in the way that he caught my eye, something in the sincerity of his voice. But as he said, James, tell me, how are you? I totally lost it. I started to cry. There are two ways to cry if you're an 18-year-old. There is the first way. I've just been watching James Bond's Skyfall, and you can cry like Daniel Cray. You can kind of hold it in and have a single tear and kind of be a picture of kind of emotionally aware masculinity, and you can kind of brood and hold it together, and that single tear will let the world know you're emotionally aware and intelligent, but also you can handle yourself, and you're not 
going to let your emotions overcome you. These were not those kind of tears. These were the second kind of tears, the ones that kind of come from deep within you. And they, they well up and they kind of ripple up through your body and then spew out of your mouth in a kind of snotty, teary mess. And I totally lost it in front of these vicars, these people I was trying to impress. I totally lost it. I broke down in tears, snots everywhere. Every time I would try and speak to justify myself, uh, they would kind of catch in the back of my throat and I would kind of hack and cry even more. And I looked like a total wreck. I tried to impress these people, tried to let them know that I was going to have what it took and I totally lost it in front of them. One of them eventually slipped me uh, a box of tissues and I was kind of ushered out uh, of the morning meeting into the corridor just to kind of sob quietly in a chair. Eventually, I, think, I don't quite know what happened in that meeting. I imagine it had a slightly unusual tone after the small boy had cried in the corner. But I, um, I was led out and given a box of tissues. And after the meeting had finished, uh, one of the vicars came out to me and she said, James, what on earth was that? And I said, I don't know. I said, well, we need to start to piece that together a little bit. So she, um, she took me to church um, and we started to talk. Um, And we started to unravel um, why I'd broken down in tears, why suddenly everything had come out uh, in a huge mess. You see, I am an identical twin. And being an identical twin is brilliant on one part. It means that you have someone uh, who gets your sense of humor, who you can laugh, who you can joke with. Uh, It means that you have someone uh, who's roughly the same size and build as you so that you can fight lots growing up. And the outcome is always kind of undetermined. You can have a good scrap and a good fight together. It means you take your best friend wherever you go. I grew up in Sheffield until I was 16, and then we moved to the Lake District when I was 17, 18, and I took my best friend with me. I didn't ever really feel lonely or left out because I had my, my best friend, my twin brother, with me. But being an identical twin uh, is also incredibly difficult it means that wherever you go, you take uh, a standard to compare yourself against as well. It means that when you take uh, your year nine sets, you have someone to compare against, and then your GCSEs, and then your A-level results. And that would be uh, fine. It's okay to compare yourself and compete as long as you always win, except I didn't ever, really. His year nine stats were better than mine, and then the GCSEs, he wiped the floor with me, and then he got straight A's at A-level, and there was no way that I could compete. So I thought, that's okay, I will beat him on the sports field. We, uh, we played cross-country, played, we ran cross-country, uh, and played cricket. Um, and it would have been okay to compete and compare there, except he was always a little bit faster than me. He always made uh, the cricket team that was one step above mine. So then I thought, I can beat him socially. If I can't beat him academically, if I can't beat him on the sporting field, I can definitely smash him socially because he's awkward. Uh, And so I decided that I'd be better than him socially. And then he turned 18 and suddenly he got really funny. And that really killed me because I thought I'd had him until he was 18 and then he got lots of jokes and he became witty and interesting and amusing. And he kind of became this all-round social demigod who could handle himself well in any situation. And I suddenly realized that every step of the way where I tried to compare myself and compete against him, I lost. I could never win. I could never be good enough. And I think I decided that if I couldn't be better than my brother, then probably uh, my parents would like me uh, a little bit less than they liked him. And that probably uh, my friends would like me uh, a bit less than they liked him as well. And that across the board, that I wouldn't really cut it. I wonder if you've ever felt like you've not quite measured up 
to the standard that you want to hit, maybe academically at school, maybe professionally, maybe in your families. You set yourself really high standards that you're never quite able to reach and attain, and the standards that you set become the thing that you use to judge and condemn yourself. You see, I used that measuring stick growing up. I realized as well that I'd taken that whole measuring stick, that whole standard, uh, and put it on to God's. Uh, and so I decided that if I couldn't be good enough for my friends and for my family, that I definitely couldn't be good enough for God either. And that if uh, my parents didn't really like me, I thought, then God probably didn't really like me either. And that I could never be good enough for God, that I could never uh, earn his approval since I couldn't earn my own parents' approval. And so all this came out in the course of a morning, and I realized that I'd turned God into some kind of judgmental God, someone who was always out to get me and to trick me, who was angry. I wonder if that's your picture of God today. Perhaps you think that God judges you, that he condemns you. In that office on that Monday morning, three weeks into my internship, I realized that God wasn't judging me at all that God unconditionally loved me and cared for me. And the reason that I started to cry when that vicar asked me how I was feeling is that there weren't any strings attached. He wasn't asking me, tell me how you feel uh, based around what you can do for me, how you can perform. Because I was 18, I could do nothing meaningful at 18, not really. Uh, But this vicar was asking me, I had a care and a concern in his voice that cut beyond any defense that I'd been able to put up completely stripped that away. And through that, through that question, I encountered the grace and the mercy of God. I went on uh, to realize that God is a perfect father who loves me no matter what I do, no matter whether I feel like I'm good enough to deserve it, no matter whether I feel like uh, I can justify myself, whether I hit my own standards, either at work or at home. God's love and grace is unconditional. He is perfectly loving. So that was my journey to Bethlehem. That was part of me discovering for myself who Jesus was. Before then, I would have described myself as Christian, but it would have been kind of a traditional thing that I would have gone to church because that was kind of the right thing to do. But suddenly, when I realized that God had a deep love and a deep concern for me, my faith came alive. God appeared to the shepherds, to the outcasts, the people on the edges of society, those who didn't think they were worth loving, the marginalized. In my uh, year, I realized that God was appearing to me too with his unconditional love and grace and affection. And God wants to reveal himself to you too. He wants you to go to the stable in Bethlehem like he's called the shepherds to meet and encounter Jesus, maybe for the first time or perhaps the hundredth time. God longs for you to go and follow him, for you to meet him. Perhaps if you've not uh, followed Jesus before, this is new to you. There's an invitation to use this Christmas break just to think more deeply about who Jesus is and what he might want, uh, what he might want your life to look like. For those of you who, um, who have followed Jesus for a long time, there's an invitation in this passage as well to return and gaze upon the face of Jesus again. The shepherds, when they get to the stable, their only response is to cry out in worship and praise and in adoration. 
So for some of you tonight, there's an invitation to return to that place of deep worship and deep love and deep joy. Let's take this Christmas season, the next few days, to reflect on where we are on our journey to Bethlehem. Whether we're a long way down the road, whether we've been following Jesus faithfully for years, or whether he's calling us to follow him for the first time. Amen.